Merry Christmas, Katie. Jesse, why would you say that to me? Well, because you're a goy. You celebrate Christmas. You're just you're you're all emotional about Jesus. You're praying to him, all that stuff. I don't even believe in Jesus. I don't believe that there there is a historical Jesus. I think that the whole thing was a myth. This is going to get you canceled. Our listeners are very very religious. This is going to get you in trouble. Yes, all of our fundamentalist Christian uh, Christian listeners, like my in laws, will um, will decide that I'm going to hell. Well, the good thing is there isn't one. Um, but thank you, Jesse. I appreciate that. For Christmas, I will be doing what I what I generally enjoy doing, which is ignoring the holiday altogether. Um, but I, I do have a question for you. Yeah. Since we've got you here, a token Jew. One of the, one of the only Jews in media. One of the only Jews in media. A true minority. A tall Jew. Menorah. Minority. Menorah. Yeah. Uh, what is Hanukkah? Oh, oh, God. Okay. So I haven't, I haven't been to Hebrew school in decades. Do you want me to just try to remember off the dome? It's, it's the less you remember, the better. The story of Hanukkah was, was comes down to us thousands of years through the Old Testament the version I remember goes a little bit something like this. The place is Tokyo. <laughs> a monster emerges from the sea that is both the symbol of and the direct result of man's hubris with regards to nuclear energy and meddling in forces it can't understand. This monster starts to destroy Tokyo. People are terrified. They're fleeing. The Japanese government calls the Israeli government and says, hey, you got those Maccabees, those, those fighters who can take down anything, send them over. Maccabees hop on a plane. They get to Tokyo. There's five Maccabees, Katie. They each have like a special ability or characteristic. One has a bow and arrow. One of them is gay, but in a way that's like described very respectfully in the Bible. Like he's just one of the guys. He has like tighter pants. Uh, one is Latino and then one's a computer hacker. And then there's one who's just like really hot. And the Maccabees... Uh, have an epic fight with Godzilla. Several of them almost die, but then they realize his weakness is fire, so the bow and arrow one lights arrows on fire, shoots eight arrows at Godzilla. Eight. Takes eight. That's why we light the eight candles on the menorah. Menorah comes from the Japanese word menorah, which translates roughly to giant sea lizard born of nuclear power. Oh, this is exactly what I thought had happened. I'm, I'm glad that I didn't waste all that time in Hebrew school um, when I could just listen to you. What's so interesting about this story is that even though it was written probably 4,000 years ago, in certain ways, some of the themes still resonate today. Like bow and, bow and arrows are awesome. Yes, that is true. So at what point did you kill Jesus? <laughs> Katie, I can't say that publicly i mean this is like you have to learn that in, in hebrew school. that's pa that's patrons only gotcha gotcha all right jesse well thank you for the history lesson and what podcast is this this is blocked and reported i'm jesse single and i'm katie herzog and today we are talking about what are we talking about fucking Oh, that's right. We are. We are actually talking about fucking. We have a very special guest on the episode, Ayla. Um, some of you might know who she is if you spend a lot of time watching pornography or hanging out on Twitter. She is one of the top creators on OnlyFans, the, this uh, camming platform that has really gone gangbusters uh, since the pandemic started. Yeah, should, we should also just say, like, by way of touting this, like, she's she's really interesting. She does a lot of other stuff, and um, she's a 
fascinating and sort of like provocative figure for reasons having to do with much more than just like her her sex work so i i was really happy when i listened to that interview i i'm proud that we're posting it yeah one of the things that she talks about so she's a member of the rationalist community and i don't think we actually took the time to explain that in this show um we've talked about it a little bit before but jesse will you give a sort of brief rundown of what rationalism is yeah rationalism is just like this online movement um that's basically geared at trying to understand human bias and the sources of disagreement in as sort of systematic and in a certain sense cold-blooded way as possible like the whole the rationalists are not afraid to try to sort of quantify and break down really controversial debates um they're they're a driving force behind like the the effective altruism movement where you try to really measure the impact of a dollar you give to charity rather than just like send it out in the world and hope it does well so yes slate star codex is the is at the moment, I think the best rationalist blog, uh, Scott Alexander, does some good stuff. And yeah, Ella is sort of associated with that movement. So it's the intersection of rationalism and sex work, which we do talk about a bit in the interview. Yeah. And if you're interested in learning more about rationalism, we have an episode about it um, that we will link in the show notes if we remember to. Yes, I probably won't, but I'm going to try to. All right. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to set a reminder for, for your on your Alexa to remind you. Alexa, remind Jesse. I'm, I'm in a room with no Alexa. So good job. Damn. Damn. All right. Well, I'm going to call your brother and tell him to do it. Alex, remind Jesse. Alex isn't listening. Was he named after yeah. Alexa? Yeah. He When he was born in 1988, yeah. my parents knew Alexa was coming out and they wanted a male version. Yes, that's what happened. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, but before we get to that, Jesse, you had a couple things you wanted to mention? Yes. I have one happy thing and one angry thing. Should we start with the happy thing? Might as well. It's Christmas. It is. It is. It is. Uh... Christmas Eve, technically. So, yeah, the happy thing is, so look, we started this, I think our first episode went up March 14th of this year. That means we just passed the nine-month mark, which means that if our podcast had knocked up a lady the day of our first episode, that lady would be just giving birth right now, which really puts things in perspective, I feel like. Jesse, I got some news for you. <laughs> oh, no. Did our, did our podcast have unsafe sex? No, but... I. Pregnancy is not actually nine months. Isn't it nine and a half or something? It's 40 weeks. I can't do that math. Yeah, that's not nine times four is 36 plus four. Oh, wait. Divide it by, divide 40 by four. 10? There are four. Yes. Oh. So if our podcast knocked up a lady, she would be like about, about ready to pop. She would be in that stage where everybody thinks that you should be giving birth, but actually you have a month left to go because people think that the gestation period is nine months when it's actually 10 months. I feel so bad that uterus owners have to go through that. <laughs> I'm going to return mine. Uh, get a better model. <laughs> I think we can't get through the most basic announcement without me derailing it. Uh, but uh, all of which was a wind up for me to say, like, you know, we're uh ending the first calendar year of this podcast we are been just like completely blown away by what has happened it has changed both of our lives katie was on the brink of some sort of descent into like addiction and i guess living with her dog in like a pickup truck i don't know what the full deal is but i think this really changed things for you it obviously changed things for me and by way of thank you for our patrons for the people who uh, pay the $5 a month for extra episodes on New Year's Eve. Uh, what time? Three three and noon. Does that work, Katie? Yeah, that works. At 3 Eastern, noon uh, Pacific, we're going to do an online video hangout for all our $5 and up patrons. This is something we do every two months for our $10 and up patrons. Uh, and we just did it. But just as a thank you for everything, uh, all our patrons are invited to this hangout, uh, three o'clock Eastern, twelve o'clock Pacific on uh, New Year's 
Eve. And um, I'll post more details about that on the Patreon page. Even if you can't make that, even if you're just a free subscriber, uh, thank you so much for just like making this podcast a very surprising success. Like, um, I mean, what's amazing is when I go back and listen to our first episodes, when you compare the quality of the audio, the production values and the content, what's amazing is that like we haven't made any progress at all. (laughs) And people still listen to it. I've bought three different mics in that amount of time. I've returned two of them, and I have settled on one that costs $30 from from, from my local retailer, Amazon.com. I still don't know what MP3 stands for or what, what like an MP2 is. I, I will randomly listen to my audio, and it'll sound like I'm underwater. Um, I don't know how to structure a podcast. I don't, I don't know how to talk. I have a shitty radio voice. I'm not good at writing the show intros. we don't have anything going for us and yet it seems to be working you know the success of this podcast makes me really glad that people apparently don't care that much about quality no it's incredible (laughs) we're so lucky it's so lucky that the world is not really a meritocracy because we would be fucked otherwise (laughs) absolutely thank god thank god for america so that's that uh sincere thank you joking aside like this has been life-changing for us the angry news is uh katie can i do a quick follow-up on the foreign policy puberty blocker stuff from last week oh please do i've been waiting to get to the conclusion of this saga we're not yet at the conclusion um last week we talked about a very bad story in foreign policy about the puberty blocker debate in england that just was sort of it had a lot of factual errors um i Katie, you and I both like don't spend a lot of time like on this podcast focusing on like, oh, this person was mean to me on Twitter or like diving deep into our beefs. I feel like we've mostly avoided that because it's not good audio, right? Yeah, there we we have definitely made some exceptions to that rule for sure. But as a general uh, rule, we want to we want this podcast to be about more than just us, mostly about us, but more than just us. Right. And also, like, if you want to see us get in fights on Twitter, just that's Twitter. what Twitter is for. Yeah. Right. Um, so I just, I just want to make one exception here, because like what I encountered from foreign policy, trying to get them to correct this story. And I'll include all the links in the show notes you need to understand what I'm talking about if they, if you're new to this. But I basically did a long newsletter post laying out very clearly what was wrong with the piece in the hopes they would correct it. Um, so after I did that, Grace Lavery, the author of the piece, as she tends to do, sort of released this like long statement about me just trying to insult me that didn't really address any of the merits of the piece. It did say that you were trying to exterminate trans people. The last line said I was trying to exterminate a generation of trans people. Someone questioned her on that. She responded with her alternate account that that was an error. She didn't mean to say that. Then she nuked her alternate account. It no longer exists. She hasn't retracted the statement that says the thing that she herself says was false. Blah, blah, blah. Don't want to focus on that. That's what we expect from um, from this particular individual. What matters a lot more to me is the reaction of James Palmer, who is the deputy editor at Foreign Policy, who commissioned and edited this article. Let me let me make that aforementioned exception and just read a few of the things he tweeted to and about me after I said to him, I think there's errors in your piece and you should... Um, Correct it. Is that cool? Wait, are you sure that he commissioned it? Uh, Grace Lavery said that he commissioned it, yeah. Okay. Or, or at the very least, he accepted the pitch. Grace Lavery mentioned him by name as her editor. Because she'd been shopping around that essay for a while. Because it was actually about something else. As she, 
acknowledged. All right. Here- right. I, I think we should wait. I think we should pause there for a sure, second. Sure. This is actually important, yeah. right? So, so Grace Lavery's spouse is Daniel Lavery, who some of you might know um, is uh, big blocked and reported. Yeah, he's blocked and reported. Fund. Daniel is the advice columnist at Dear Dear Prudy. Um, he has written a bunch of books under his his former name that I'm not going to mention. Um, he was a uh, instrumental at the toast, sort of a beloved, like millennial online literary type. And Daniel has a Substack newsletter, and in Daniel's Substack, he said something about Grace having placed this piece in foreign policy that she, Daniel's spouse, has been trying to place all year. So the piece is about a ruling that came down a couple weeks ago from the British High Court or whatever. The, is it called the British High Court? Something like that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know much. I mean, this is why I would not pitch a piece on this too far policy. So uh, a British court. So this ruling is recent. And Grace has apparently been trying to shop this piece around, which wasn't as much about the ruling. Well, it was about the ruling, obviously, but it was also about this sort of personal vendetta that Grace has against gender critical feminists in the UK. So Grace, so let's just like think about that. Grace has been trying to place a piece for a year about something that just happened. That the my assumption there is that the piece was not about the, the ruling, was not about the high court's decision. It was about something else. And Grace slotted, just used that as a news peg um, to, to publish this other content. Well, yeah. And one of the things I said in my uh, Substack sort of debunking of it was I'm not going to respond to most of this piece because it's not even about the ruling. That was very apparent if you read it. But um, yes, foreign policy took as a reaction to a specific court ruling a piece that the author had been trying to place for a year that was really about something else, which... You know, you could imagine a version of that that would be okay if she had, like, carefully drawn connections, but instead she messed a lot of stuff up. So, uh, James Palmer, foreign policy deputy editor, his job in this situation is to adjudicate this whole thing, to, like, figure out if they need to correct anything. And, again, these are straightforward factual corrections about, like, the name of a drug. She mentions Lupron multiple times throughout the piece. In, in England, they don't use Lupron for puberty blocking usually. She gets the name of someone wrong. She misrepresents the ruling itself. Here's a few of James Palmer's tweets. Man, if I had written an article attempting to whip up a moral panic about trans kids so bad it got slammed by literally every credible commentator, I would retreat from the subject rather than dedicating my life to transphobic bigotry. But that's just me. So because... So, and- and and he's not talking about Grace there. He's talking about you. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, because that really, I mean, that really, that would be accurate about, about Grace's fees. Whipping up a moral panic about trans kids. Exactly. So, yes. so because I asked him to correct errors in his piece, I'm dedicating my life to transphobic bigotry. Another one. This is a response to our buddy John Stokes. I blocked Jesse because he's a weirdo transphobe. Grace responded to most of his claims of errors in a thorough letter. No, she didn't do that. She It was a bizarre letter. I will link to it in the show notes. You can read it for yourself. She did not respond in anything like a meaningful way to the issues I raised. Another one from James. Jesse, your criticisms have been answered with far more grace than I could manage by grace. Your weird obsession with this piece, like your weird obsession with trans people, is on you. I now intend to keep ignoring you as I was ignoring you for long before then. Setting aside how heartbroken I am that James Palmer ignores me, um, 
This is ridiculous behavior from a foreign editor, from someone near the top of the masthead at a major magazine. It is not your job to jump into fucking internet slap fights and show that you're on the wrong side of them. It is your job, the thing you get paid, and I would imagine paid pretty well for, to look at the claims people make about the stuff you publish. To at least look at what I said and to judge whether I'm right. I Now, I happen to know I'm right because these are such basic errors and it's so easy to prove, but... You know, I could be wrong. Someone just needs to check. There was like an incredible contrast between the way James responded to this and the way Ravi Agrawal, I could be mispronouncing his name. That's the editor in chief. I emailed him a few days later. He got back to me, said, Jesse, we're going to look into this closely, likely right after the holidays. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. That's how you do this. You need you need to at least do your job. But this this so captured stuff I've written about and I'm worried about, about certain norms disintegrating within journalism and certain other norms colonizing them like someone like james palmer who is in a position of real power and gatekeeping just sees himself as an activist he sees his job as quote like defending trans kids in this really silly myopic way and you just to have people like that at the top rungs of journalism is so corrosive to journalism it really is just the line between activism and journalism is just so muddy, so muddy. And and it's in some ways it's becoming less muddy because people are openly talking about how journalists are openly talking about how they are activists, um, which I sort of appreciate. But publications need to be super transparent about this. Either you can be foreign policy, the highly respected journal, or you can be foreign policy that gets in stupid fights on Twitter and publishes misinformation, but you can't be both. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. That's well put. And just like, when it gets to the point where an editor won't even check to see whether a piece he edited that his fingerprints are all over contain factual errors, uh, there's no point for journalism to exist. Why, why should we have a separate thing separate from PR and activism? So I, again, I think you guys can understand why on this particular instance, I'm, I'm reading these tweets and getting pissed off about this, but I just thought that was ridiculous. I fully expect and am predicting that this piece will be corrected now that it has the editor in chief's attention, because all you have to do is read what I wrote and the errors are apparent. Okay. Sorry about that tangent, Katie. Do you think that maybe if the podcast doesn't work out, you could get a job fact-checking at foreign policy? <laughs> you could be G James Palmer's fact-checker. Yeah. Only their pieces on gender yeah. dysphoria, though. Uh, okay, should we should we jump into this interview, which will be a lot more fun than what you all just listened to? Yeah, let's uh, hear from Ayla. All right, Ayla, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so we wanted to talk to you for a couple of reasons. For one thing, you are involved in what is, I assume, really changing the face of the pornography uh, industry in a way that is sort of also happening... Uh, in our industry, in media. So you make the bulk of your income on OnlyFans. Um, I read a headline from Business Insider from a couple months ago that you make $100,000 a month on OnlyFans. So I assume that that number has gone up since then. It's actually gone down, believe it or not. Um, I ended Really? Up, yeah, I ended up moving and doing other things and getting distracted. And so my income has dropped about 50%, which, you know, 50K a month is still really substantial. But uh, everybody on Twitter is telling me I'm rich. And I'm like, well... Yeah, you're not rich compared to like a, a tech titan, but but you're doing pretty good. Right. <laughs> yeah, I am. And so OnlyFans, uh, first of all, let's, I want you to, to introduce OnlyFans to our audience because there are going to be some normies who listen to this podcast for some reason who don't know what OnlyFans is. Right. So OnlyFans is basically uh, like Patreon, except sexy. I mean, it doesn't even have to be sexy. It's you 
can make a feed where you post things to your feed and people can pay to access your feed. And then you also have like a messaging system inside where you can DM people. And then in that messaging system, you can send uh, media, which you can decide to lock for a price or not lock for a price. And that is basically, I described 90% of what only So, So you say that it's not all sexy. So are there people actually making money for doing non-sexy things on on OnlyFans? Yeah. I mean, this is a big part of OnlyFans marketing, apparently, is that they're trying to market it as though it is not sexy. Um, yeah, I got it. I got an email wait, from really? Me too. They were, yeah. Did you get one, Jesse? I did. But I, so unlike you, I realize it's just a marketing gimmick. They want us to then tweet about how crazy it is they reached out to us, but you fell for it. I totally fell for it. And I, you know, I should have known better <laughs> because they, my name on, on Twitter is Cutie Herzog, which is just a joke. And the, the message that I got said like, dear cutie. So obviously these people don't actually know who I was. And I totally tweeted about it because it was hilarious. Wow. Did they want you to join? They It did. I mean, it was a, you know, it was some sort of form letter. Um, you know, you might be interested in this. And I did write back. I can't, I can't remember what exactly I, I said, but I did ask something about like, can people, you know, I'm not going to take my clothes off. Can people do other things on OnlyFans? And I got a response from the whatever marketer sent me this email and said yes, but I, I did not pursue it. The email I got didn't mention anything sexy. It was just like, we'd like you to join as like one of our creators. But I'm, I'm, Assuming, Ayla, that the most successful OnlyFans accounts tend to be uh, uh, sexual. This is true. Mostly, I think, just because OnlyFans allows that. And so all of the sexy people kind of migrated there. Because, like, you can't do that sort of thing on Patreon, you know? Right, right. So, but I think... Were you ever on Patreon? I, I have I have an account. I haven't really tried using it. Okay, gotcha. So tell us, what, what do you actually do? What is your, like, sexy or non-sexy content like on OnlyFans? I, I have to admit, I, I have not actually checked you out on OnlyFans. I'm sure Jesse has. <laughs> no, I will. We'll get into this. But I'm incredibly prude about all this stuff. So I'm going to have dumb questions for you later. But uh, no. I know. It's harder. To, it's harder to watch porn of people you know. It's like it kind of is freaky. Like I can watch porn of people I have no idea who they are, and it feels fine. But as soon as they're my friends, I'm like, oh, cannot get aroused at this. I'm a total porn novice. I have watched pornography exactly one time in my life, and it was what? at yeah, and it was at the Hump Film Festival. Is that my former boss Dan Savage? It was at his like public film festival. So not only was I watching porn for the first time in my life in public, surrounded by other people, there were also people that I knew in the porn like buck angel had a scene in it where he was like his asshole was getting fisted and i know buck and so it was very it was like not how nor- people normally get introduced to pornography it was also the last time i watched it uh i am extremely impressed by the fact that you've managed to go so long without watching porn i'm a prude wait actually Ayla, let, let me derail things immediately okay i because i think it would be weird talking to you if i had seen any of your content which i have not why is that? What What is the psychological thing going on there? Is it just like shame or prudishness or what? I, I don't know. I think there's like a compartmentalization thing going on. Like when somebody's a friend, then suddenly it becomes like an impact on your relationship with them if you experience them sexually in any way. Whereas there is no impact on the person if you don't know them. So like it might make, make things weird if you watch porn of your friend. Right. And, and, and this probably goes the other way because you, you, I mean, I assume via the platform you have men mostly men who like they can send you private messages or whatever and try to form some sort of parasocial relationship where they're not just another viewer right right and and the, and does it, what what does it do to like the dynamics there because both of you know that this is about money like what i don't know i sorry this is i'm already getting into my like prude 
I might as well be like a six-year-old boomer who has just introduced all this, but I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, that's okay. I, I think this is super fascinating because I think that like very, like as a general whole, people tend to view OnlyFans negatively because they don't understand what men really want. Um, so this is like a great, a great thing to talk about. Um, yeah, like men want intimacy. They want to have a relationship with the person they're seeing sexually. So for them, it's like I'm closer to like a girlfriend role. Um, OnlyFans actually decreases this, by the way, in contrast to previous installations of online sex work. Um, it's a little bit more distant um, as a whole, I would say. But it's still it's still pursuing that basic thing where like men want to feel like they're cared about by someone. So so how do you like dole? Okay, you're not going to you're not going to treat them with the same sort of cold distance, like a, a clerk at some markets might like when you're interacting with them, you need to uh, sort of capitalize off the fact that they're looking for that intimacy, but you're also not going to provide them with actual intimacy because they are a customer at the end of the day. Right. Right. Well, I, I think it's pretty analogous to therapy. Like if you're a therapist, you have to have boundaries. Like you can't actually get wrapped up in the life of your client. That would be really unhealthy and unsustainable. But I do think that there is some genuine connection to be had between a therapist and client. Like just because that is the frame you're operating in, like it doesn't mean the kind of interaction you're having isn't healthy or real in some sort of contained way. And I think this is very similar to what's going on in OnlyFans. Like obviously there has to be compartmentalization. Like I can't live my life, you know, having dating like a thousand people. It just is totally unfeasible. Um, but within the constraint given, I do feel like there is some sort of authenticity there, which I am very grateful for. Um, so from your perspective, what does it say about the world that we live in now that men are seeking you out instead of going to find a girlfriend? Well, I think they would get a girlfriend if they could. I think that by and large, most of these men feel incapable of getting a girlfriend. Um, part of it is some of them are married uh, in long-term relationships where their wife is no longer sexually interested in them. And they don't want to blow up their whole life by leaving their wife. Like maybe they have kids, like maybe they're just like, maybe they really love their wife, right? And they don't want to leave her. Um, and so this is an outlet. This is a way for them to like still feel that sort of sexual thing. Like um, I once had a guy tell me that he got cancer. Um, he got a cancer diagnosis that was pretty grim. And he realized, wait, I don't want to die without ever having sex again. Like I don't want to die without experiencing physical, physical intimacy with a woman. And that was when he decided to cheat on his wife. Um, and so they do, do it like really compartmentalized. Um, this is one segment of guys. This is like the married guys who are off the market and like are trying to find a safe outlet to have. Um, some guys are just younger or they're too busy or they don't feel like adequate enough. Like girls don't pay them attention and they don't know how to get attention from girls. And this is like a very clear way to get that intimacy they crave so much. So I find a lot of aspects of sort of like uh, incel, involuntary celibate uh, discourse silly and and sometimes actually demonizing of like young men that i think have serious issues that we should be sympathetic toward obviously i'm setting out the tiny fracture that we're actually violent but isn't part of the problem less that some of your clients like can't find a girlfriend but more that they can't settle for someone who doesn't have like very specific and like high percentile physical characteristics this seem like maybe this might describe some of them like, I don't want to say absolutely not, um, because there's obviously going to be somebody like that. This doesn't quite feel to be true of, like, the general clientele that I've experienced. Um, and also, not just me. I've been friends with sex workers for years, and we've talked pretty extensively about our experiences. So, I like, I want to kind of hesitantly also claim that this doesn't seem to be true for the sex workers that I'm friends with. Um, like, 
sex workers who are not that physically attractive still get a lot of attention from men. I mean, if if you were if you were, if all of these customers were incels, we would expect to see like a much stronger distribution across income for girls who are very attractive. Uh, that's interesting. So it, the stereotype of the John as sort of the man hating misogynist who just wants ownership, woman hating, <laughs> woman, well, yeah. woman hating. Um, so that is not true in your experience. Uh, not overall. Again, like this is true probably of a minority of people. Uh, I'm not going to say this doesn't happen, um, but it like to describe this as like the way that it works to do sex work like does not feel honest or genuine to me. Gotcha. Do you experience any of the uh, sort of the fears or the or the harms that um, a more traditional sex worker would would maybe experience someone who is, you know, meeting people in person? Uh, so I, I don't know if you know, but I was a in person sex worker for about a year and a half. Okay, um, gotcha. up until just recently. So I did in person prostitution. Um, uh, yet yeah, this is much safer, I have to say. Um, in some ways and not others. So I, I've actually felt pretty safe doing in-person sex work, relatively speaking. Um, and online, I have the the risk of like very high visibility. Um, like somebody, a cable man recently came to my house and then recognized me, uh, right? So, so, and then tweeted at me that he like, hey, like I know you, right? So that was kind of uh, disturbing, right? And so I don't have that problem with in-person sex work, or at least when I did it. So there's this like high visibility issues that, that come with it. Um, but overall, I would say it, it does feel safer, uh, especially um, if you're like comparing against the kind of sex work where you don't have the privilege of doing good screening. But, well, so do you have concerns about how this is going to affect your life later on? Oh, not really. Uh, I've long, I've been doing sex work since I was 20 and I'm almost 29. So I've very long ago given up the idea that I will ever have a normal life. Like that's like the sort of the sacrifice that you make. Um, so no, I'm not really concerned about that anymore. I am mostly just focused on getting enough savings so that once I start to get uh, gross and saggy and then guys are like, ew, then, then, you know, I have a backup. Do you have a number that uh, that once you hit the number, then you'll be sort of safe? Right now I'm aiming for 1.2 million. How, how far along are you, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, not super far, actually. So I wasn't really saving until I started OnlyFans. Um, because I was doing alternatively like uh, living off savings versus working and then versus living off savings. So I wasn't actually building up a, a retirement fund. You're pretty involved in sort of the, the rationalist community, right? Uh-huh. Well, I, well, I, I don't know why. I'm all, I mean, just from looking at your stuff, I, I associate you with that. I just I find that to be a really interesting overlap because issues pertaining to sex work and camming are so sort of fraught with emotion. Is there, is there anything from those particular approaches, the sort of rationalist worldview that like helps you try to make sense of this thing in, in a more, I don't know, logical or sort of detached way? I think it, like, it might be sort of at first. Like, I was drawn towards the rationalist community because I'm already predisposed to take things in that kind of way, right? Uh, I, interestingly, there's a surprisingly high amount of the women in the rationalist community have done sex work. Like, it just seems to be a thing that women do, um, from when they're predisposed in that way. Uh, I think there's like, it just feels like you're less driven by sort of social cues in some way. Maybe it's like the autism. I was going to ask because like the rationalist community does, I think it's fair to say uh, disproportionately high number of people on the autism spectrum, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you think that makes it easier to sort of say, you know, given where I am in my life, this makes sense to do and to not worry so much about like the shame or stigma of it. Right, or like you're less affected by it. 
Uh, like, like I was grew up super fundamentalist religious, right? And so I had to like leave all of that behind. I sort of like figure out from the ground up how to do sexuality, and that sort of gave me a, a totally fresh perspective that was t- kind of independent from shame in some way, and that let me like go into it because I'm like, okay, this doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't make sense to be upset by sex work. Like, why should I feel bad about this? And so I didn't feel bad about it. Yeah, tell us a little bit about this. Your personal story is 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 very interesting. Can you give us sort of the short bio? Yeah, my um, dad is a professional evangelical uh, minister, and I grew up with my family being deeply involved in like witnessing, debating. Like I would go with my dad when he would debate at churches, um, and and so we were very focused on like the analytical, de- like dedication to the Christian faith, and I was very devout personally. Um, it was, we were homeschooled, uh, didn't, weren't allowed to watch like media that was too secular. Uh, I didn't know anybody else who wasn't Christian. Uh, I was expected to be a stay at home wife and, uh, go to college only specifically to find a man and have kids. And like anything else was kind of outside of God's plan. Uh, and I was supposed to be submissive to my husband and stuff like that. There was one thing you wrote, um, where you talked about sort of getting back into, porn versus versus just camming and there were aspects of it that like i heard a tinge of almost what once what some i'm probably misinterpreting this so you'll explain to me but almost what some like anti-porn people would say like a certain element of yourself becoming more divided or slightly dissociated or, or did i misread that yeah i actually don't remember what i wrote but that sounds right um and I like I think anti-porn people are kind of touching on something that's true. Like it's very rare that people have a very strong ideological stance that does not touch on anything true. Uh, and sometimes I feel like a little bit scared to talk about it because I'm afraid that people are going to like cling on to this as evidence for something that I don't exactly mean. Uh, but I think this is true. Like there is something pretty difficult about doing porn because like it changes the way that people see you in such a way. And sometimes this makes me feel like resentment. Or, or anger towards men for you know being so driven by their dicks you know it kind of sucks sometimes yeah so i'm glad jesse brought this up so i wanted to uh bring in the voice of an anti-sex work feminist in part because our uh, we do have a lot of feminists in our audience um and i and i don't think that i'm particularly well posed to make the to make the feminist anti-sex work argument because it's not one that i personally hold so i asked julie bendel um to, to speak to me about it and give me a little bit uh, a little bit of her perspective and here's what she said in in recent years we've moved on to prostitution behind a camera which we've always called pornography but now it's more interactive so camming for example well i did some research on camming for my book uh, the pimping of prostitution spoke to a few women all of whom said well what would you rather do physically sell sex on street, get penetrated by men who you don't want to have sex with, or just play a game and do it from the safety of behind a camera. And of course, yeah, if I had to choose, that's definitely what I'd choose. But there is no way to make prostitution, which camming is part of, safe. Because the the toll on women is not just a physical toll, but it's also a psychological, mental toll. Being abused and violated by men who clearly want to do things to you and to your body that you don't really want to do. And the cash is the only reason why you're there. Does any of that resonate with you or, um, or does that not speak to your experience at all? Not really. 
It like, or like it like yes, but like the framing seems so disconnected from my personal experience. Like, yes, I am receiving cash. Like now I'm speaking like as an actual prostitute. Like yes, I was receiving cash for being penetrated by a man, and like maybe I would rather not have been having that happen. Um, and sure, like camming is a form of prostitution if you want to define it like that. But like, I've been part of so many jobs that were worse than prostitution. Like, like prostitution was like one of the best jobs I've ever had. It was really fulfilling in a lot of ways. And I have been, I've done a lot of things I didn't want to do for money that are considered socially acceptable, like work at a factory for 50 hours a week without any sunlight where I was drinking every night to like emotionally handle it. Like with prostitution, I wasn't drinking every night to emotionally handle it. I liked it. Obviously it had its ups and downs. Like there were problems. Um, but like, sort of like the way that she describes it feels like maybe she's describing the way that she personally would relate to something like that. Like maybe she personally could not imagine, you know, having sex with a man for money. Like this would be like a horrible rape-like violation for her. And that's fine. Like she doesn't have to, like, and maybe that's true for her. Um, it, it feels a little bit disingenuous for that to be the description of my experience. And a lot of women who I've talked to, like she may have talked to some sex workers, um, but I've talked to, hundreds of sex workers over nine years doing studies and surveys um, and interviews even um, over a wide range of types of sex work. And this does describe some of them, but like most people who are doing this long term, like don't really view it in the way that she described it. Um, do, you th do you think there's a chance you guys probably both have sort of like sampling issues, right? Where she's much less likely to be in touch with sex workers who like it and you are less likely to be in touch with those who had horrible experiences. Maybe? I, I think this is, is true. Um, like, for example, I don't get to interview, you know, women who are extremely poor working on the street who aren't online because I just don't have contact with that sort of thing. Um, so it could be that those women are having a really awful time and none of them like it at all. Uh, maybe. Right. I think that's one of the frustrations that that some feminists have with the sort of contemporary media narrative, at least on the left about sex work, is that you have people like me. I've, I've interviewed a bunch of sex workers and they're all like highly successful at it and they're not being coerced and they enjoy the work and they talk a lot about the, the the flexibility and about how they feel like they're providing a service and it does for some of them it feels like a calling um and those are the people who we tend to do profiles of or we talk to people like you and part of that is socioeconomic and and in terms of visibility but there is of course this underclass of sex workers who who aren't getting you know profiled and whatever whatever the pages of the new york times or whatever um so i can see that being a frustration um, for feminists and other people who are sort of inherently against sex work, but something something that you said a moment ago resonated with resonated with me. Um, so I I there's this great story about you that was published in Playboy a couple years ago, and it was also about your sisters. And it turns out both of your sisters at the time, at least, were also on OnlyFans. They were doing camming. OnlyFans wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Right. We're doing uh, we're doing camming. And one of your sisters doesn't do any sort of sexy stuff at all, right? Yeah. She dressed up like a banana, mostly. So does she make a good living through that? Uh, she, I, she hasn't done it for a while. She quit like shortly after that story was published. Um, and she made some money. I don't think it was a really good living. 
Okay. Uh, well, so I took a I took a screenshot of the of a section of the article and I posted it on Twitter and it was it was a section specifically about your sister and how she does this thing that is not really sexual at all. Um, and I and I just said like you know feminist on my feed, anti-sex work feminist on my feed. What's your perspective on this? Do you think is this still problematic if a woman is being paid for these interactions, but she's not in physical danger? She's not showing skin. Um, you know, maybe there's maybe there's men like jerking off you know, on the other side of the world or whatever, but she's not actually seeing it. And I got a ton of responses and it probably won't surprise you to hear that most of them were like, no, this is still bad. And one of them, um, one, one woman said, uh, if she wouldn't do it for a guy without being paid, she's being financially coerced. Being, finan being financially coerced to have sex is bad. And, and my response to that is like, well, you know, I wouldn't write an article if I weren't paid to do it. Does that count as financial coercion as well? I, it kind of reminds me of when I was growing up, my family was extremely anti-abortion. Um, my mom was arrested for protesting an abortion clinic. Like my close family friend like drives those trucks where you have the giant graphic images. Um, like, so this is the sort of thing. And they talked about abortion kind of similar to these terms. They said that abortion it wasn't just killing an innocent child. They said it was going to create this soul damage for the woman who did it. Like, how could you live? Like, it's got to hurt you in some way. Same way with premarital sex. If you have any premarital sex, this is going to like damage your soul in some metaphysical way. And that reminds me really strongly of the way that these people are talking about sex work. Like, sex is elevated to a thing where it no longer um like adheres to the typical rules of money exchange like it's so important that that we can't think of it in the same way um and that it feels like a religious thing to me this might be true for some people like i'm not saying that this is 100 percent untrue i think that some people view sex in such a way that it is damaging for them if they do sex work but like my issue is that they're applying this to everybody that's the problem isn't to me, the steel man version of that argument has always been something like for every Ayla who makes six figures and lives a comfortable life doing this. and can Six figures a month, Jesse, come on. <laughs> six figures a month, right. Uh, so veering up on uh, or seven figures, basically. You know, there, there, I forget the name of the documentary, but there are situations where like a troubled 17 or 18 year old finds herself in a group house and quickly gets into porn and shoots 20 scenes in a month. I'm sure I have these numbers somewhat off and, and makes... $20,000 off it, which is an incredible sum for her at the time, but won't do anything for her in the long run. And then they just sort of churn through these girls very quickly. And they are just like, it's like an assembly line of low budget porn. And even that is like a step up from the lowest income levels of street work. But even that is pretty exploitative. So isn't there a way to just point out that like people have very different outcomes? And it's like, if you went to an eight year old and said, an 18 year old and said, you're going to have a seven-figure income doing this. That would maybe cause people to look at it differently. Uh, sure. I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think that a lot of people have a really hard time in sex work. Like, a lot of people are really not successful. I, I also want to point out, like, a slight middle ground, which is there are a lot of people who do sex work and they don't hate it, but still don't make a lot of money. Like, some people have been doing this for 10 years, making, like, $1,500 a month, and they're etching by, and they consider that to be fine. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see why we have to approach this as a general sense. Like some people really don't work well in sex work. Sometimes sex work is exploitative and sometimes it's not. And I don't advise that everybody get into OnlyFans. Like if somebody comes to me asking, like, should I do this? I first ask them a lot of questions. Like, how do you psychologically handle sex in general? Like, what is the stake of your community and your family? Like, what would you be giving up to do this? Like, what is the likelihood that you can actually pursue this as a serious job full time? Like, are you ready to make such a big sacrifice in order to enter this sphere? 
Like I, I don't just advise people just do it willy dilly. You know, I think that would be very irresponsible. And there's also such like profound interpersonal differences in in how people process even just casual sex for no money that you would think that that would like have a pretty big impact on whether someone could handle uh, or thrive doing sex work. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a very good indicator. I think that somebody's personal relationship to casual sex is often very correlated to how well they're going to emotionally handle sex work. Interesting. There, did you see that piece in the New York Post um, that that was about the EMT who is doing OnlyFans? I don't think so. So this came out. Jesse, did you see this? I only saw the headline. It looked really gross. I mean, did they out her yeah. or was it just? They did. Aww. So so assuming that this is OK. So New York Post publishes this piece saying like EMT is doing OnlyFans to make a living or whatever. And they had a bunch of quotes from her. So if you read the piece, it looked like she, you know, she I don't know if she volunteered, but it looked like like she was a willing participant in the story she has since come out and said that she begged the journalist to to um to not use her name and there's now a uh, a gofundme that when i looked this morning had like twenty thousand dollars raised for her um so assuming that that's true it's a fucked up story like she's not a public figure it shouldn't have gotten published assuming that this was she didn't like hire a publicist do the story and then throw the throw the journalist on the bus which i have no reason to think that that actually happened but just assuming that that what she says is true it's a fucked up story to write um but one thing she said you know i I, i'm like i'm clearly a prude i've never watched porn in my in my life um except for except for the one time at my former boss's pornography film festival um but i still think you know i've done a lot of stories on sex workers and my sense from talking to them is that this is something that uh shouldn't be as taboo as it is that obviously there are you know, uh, there's a, a, a vast array of experiences that people can have and as many terrible experiences that, they, that people can have, there's also good experiences and that this can actually, you know, be a real benefit for some women. But she she said something in the piece about, you know, someone paying her $10 to watch her take a shower. And I read that and it did kind of make me feel a little sad because the amount of money is so low um, that, you know, like even if I even if I sort of in theory think that OnlyFans is fine and that people shouldn't be lose their jobs or anything like that, shouldn't have this massive social stigma. There's still something about like, man, you're like making 10 bucks to let some dude like watch you. Katie, if if we crowdfund this, we can get our patrons to pay more than $10 to watch you shower. Don't worry. (laughs) <laughs> I've, well i've never showered so that's the problem you should shower the same time you watch porn for the first time <laughs> yes for the first time my first shower and my first my first film gangbang um so but i mean do, do you ever have that experience where you sort of hear these words and you're like oh that is that is kind of shitty that is kind of kind of sad or does it all feel sort of empowering and positive to you well it's difficult for me because like uh so i'm i'm a member of some facebook groups and the girls in these facebook groups by and large are not making very much money i would say they're probably in the category of ten dollars for a shower uh and the thing is like i feel like it's not my place to tell them that that's not worth it for them like given their financial situation in life like maybe for them ten dollars means a lot more than it does to me and it feels sad to me but like that like i can't tell them that it's not worth it i think usually um most girls when they first start out sex work they price themselves very low because they don't know how it works and then over time they raise their prices this happened to me um i like i did my first live come show for like a pitiful amount of money until like one day i was like oh wait a second like they're still going to pay me if i raise my prices so i think it's just quite likely that um we're seeing like a massive influx of sex workers in the market from OnlyFans. so i think likely we're gonna see the raising of prices with time as they figure they can do it well but but there's but there's got to be for every one of you there's 
10 people who try this and find that their work cannot support higher prices, right? Like there's some basic economics, especially with the glut of, of people offering these services. Right. So I think mostly the issue is marketing, like and business running. I think that like for most girls, except maybe girls who are like the very low tier of, you know, sexual attractiveness, um, the problem is not whether or not they can sell their bodies. They just have no idea how to. Uh, so in this regard, I would think like business classes or something would be really good for them. Yeah, that's a great idea. Bus- uh, OnlyFans should start a little business school. Maybe OnlyFans, OnlyFans Patreon, and Substack should should get together and start some sort of online course for creators how to do your taxes and market yourself. I, oh, yeah. I, I, I will say like as we have this conversation, I, I understand that um, in the extreme cases, people doing this work face actual dangers. But a lot of this is some aspect of this and i feel like i'll get yelled at for saying this but just are like any other kind of work like i will sometimes get approached by young people who want to go into journalism and the only honest advice to give them is like you know if you're willing to write opinion pieces for the very low rates the market will bear unless you become a star sure but otherwise this might not be the thing to go into i guess that that might just be the same advice for some people going to sex work yeah that sounds absolutely true so you've done a lot of, of research on your own um, about like lots and lots of different subjects. We'll post a, a link to your website on our show notes so people can see a little bit more specifically what I'm talking about. But uh, I'm curious, have you done any research on the sort of distribution of, of income at OnlyFans? Yeah, I posted a graph recently on my Twitter. Um, uh, uh, so you get ranked as a percentage on OnlyFans. It gives you like a little sign on your statements sheet. Uh, like, oh, you're in the top 20% or whatever. Uh, and this is over the last 30 days of income. So this updates as the, the 30 days rolls over. Uh, and I made a graph out of the reports of girls where how much income they had made corresponding to the percentage they're at. So this is basically a really good distribution. Um, and basically to make any sort of real money, you have to be above uh, 0.1%. Oh, wow. Or point. One percent. Sorry. <laughs> top one percent. So if you're at the bottom of the top one percent, how much do you make? About- I I need to look up the graph again. I think I think it was like point. So it was basically just like a L, and at the corner of the L shape, it was I think point seven percent. I see. I fear that like a lot of uh, crowdfunded type Patreon and Substack things are similar, but this this would sort of give some ammo to the argument that like. If you're going to put images of yourself naked online or video of yourself naked online, which whether it should be or shouldn't be stigmatized is, and then will live there forever, it's useful information for the worker to know they have maybe a one in a hundred percent chance of making a living off this, right? I think that's true. Um, I also think that those numbers are slightly misrepresented. I think that uh, most people, like it's not hard to do well on OnlyFans. At least it's not hard to make at least some living, livable amount of money. Like it's not hard to pay your rent. Um, most of the people who aren't paying their rent or really have no idea how to do it at all. Like they don't post often. They put their sub prices too low. Um, they don't know how to fill porn, like stuff like that. But if you have like basic skills and if you're at least a little bit smart, and if you're a little bit dedicated, it's not really difficult to get over a thousand a month. But to get a, a hundred thousand a month is a is a different thing. Yeah, it's very different. Okay, so where do you fall in this this in the hierarchy of OnlyFans? Like percentage? Yeah. Right now I'm point nine percent, point zero nine. Sorry, um, when I was making my, I peaked at point zero three percent. Wow. Okay. So uh, do you have any sense of how many people would be above you um, or how many people are doing it at all? I think I calculated this one point. I forget. I think there's like 500,000 creators or something. 
Um, so at like my peak, I had maybe, I don't know, like 800 people above me or something like that. How did only, how has OnlyFans disrupted the, the wider pornography or prostitution market? Camming was already on its way out or like there was a drop in the earnings girls were reporting from camming, which is mostly like the thing that the precursor to OnlyFans, I would say, um, before OnlyFans got big, which I'm kind of confused by. Um, but maybe this is part of the reason why OnlyFans got big. Like, camming was dropping, uh, girls weren't earning as much money, and they were looking for alternatives, possibly. Um, but uh, OnlyFans is disrupting it in the sense that, like, if you go on cam girls' sites now, you can generally find them using that as a funnel for their OnlyFans. Because, the, like, the key difference with OnlyFans is you can't, they don't internally advertise the way that other pornographic sites do. So every user has to go advertise themselves on other sites. And so you're seeing like suddenly this huge influx, like massive of independent users, users trying to get people to subscribe to their page on like every platform that permits it, per, uh, gives permission for it. So like on Reddit, you have to see all these subreddits are changing rules. There's like a FetLife and and like Twitter, all the sex girls on Twitter are now pumping their OnlyFans. Yes, I have noticed See, that. one question is why didn't, if the pandemic hit, why didn't that uh, make income flow go to camming and not OnlyFans? Like, why is it this website? Well, uh, t well let me stop you there. What's the difference? Oh, right. So camming is a, a live show. So you can log on, see a live stream. And then usually there's some sort of conversation um, you can type on the site. So you can see other people chatting and like tips being given to the performer. Um, and then she logs off and that's mostly it. And would that be like on your own site or was there one central repository for cam girls? Generally hosted um, my free cams, I think it was the highest earning campsite and chatterbait oh interesting so yeah i'm i'm curious about why why those sites didn't aren't the ones that you know hit this blockbuster phenomenon um and only fans right. which makes me think that it's not just the pandemic i think if the pandemic we should have seen a surge equally in all sort of sites like that but we did i mean yeah i mean maybe it's just the sort of like you know zoom zoom took off you know it's just the brand name becomes a meme um and then it's just sort of takes off because other people are talking about it yeah i mean that's partly that i i also suspect that it has to do with the structure of the website itself i think we haven't seen a structure quite like this before and it finally hit momentum like on this website it's designed specifically to make the customers feel like they have a more intimate relationship with the woman um there's like little things like you can't see how many other people's comments on photos you cannot see they, they really separate the men from any sort of interaction with each other Interesting. I, I'm surprised that, that that's better. I, I would think, I mean, I guess it makes sense because there's more of a sense of intimacy if you're not all like throwing tips from the crowd. But I would think that there would be some sort of competitive aspect that would, um, that would actually sort of, uh, you know, encourage higher tipping. Right. And that's, that was what shocked me too, because this is why camming works. On camming, they really feed off of the competitive aspect. Um, the distribution of income from your clients is really lopsided on camming. Like it was very common for girls to receive 80% of their income from like one or two people. And it was really kind of unstable in that way. Like you, whales make or break you. And I, th and for a while I thought like, this is the way to make money through sex work. But I think that like it was losing out on a whole bunch of uh, like market need for every individual man to be able to have access, which is what OnlyFans provides. Can you talk a little bit about um, just just navigating that that form of sort of like mediated intimacy? Like, are there any? What are some of the sort of uncomfortable or, or uh, just situations where you had to like maybe 
set a boundary a little bit? Um, I tend to be better at that than most girls. I, I like, for example, with camming, a lot of girls would talk to their members offline and build relationships and that would translate to money. I never did this thing. Um, so I have been had has ha, I've had less issue uh, setting boundaries. I did have some people get really attached and I mostly don't set a hard boundary. I mostly just stop responding quite as much until I slowly eased towards silence and then they get the hint. So what is the interaction like during a performance? Like, is this all live? Not on OnlyFans. Um, camming it is live, yeah. Okay, so okay, so these are recorded. So you do a show and you record it and you put it online. Um, so how? where does the interaction come from? On OnlyFans, I'm actually mostly not doing shows. Uh, it's mostly I just post photos every day or like very small clips of me, you know, jiggling my boobs or like talking about my day or like ranting about something. Uh, and then most of the direct interaction comes through DMs. How much work is this? Like, how many hours a week do you work, do you think? Well, my lately it's been less hours a week because my income is dropping. This was very tightly correlated. When I was making a lot of money, I was working maybe three to four hours a day. That's pretty good for $100,000 a month. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. It's, it's really insane. Um, but now I work fewer hours and I'm making a lot less. All right, and and to to switch back to your family for a second. So uh, so how does your so you grew up in this evangelical household? You your parents clearly know what you're doing and what your sisters are doing. Um, do you still have a relationship with them? Um, with my mom, yes. With my dad, not quite so much. My dad's kind of a jerk, so I don't really talk to him. Um, my mom is she just likes to pretend that everything is fine, so she just sort of ignores it. Right. Does do, do her friends know about this? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that's not something that you put in the family Christmas card. Right. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, my daughter is <laughs> really good at doing porn. You bet really, but emphasis on the really good part, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. who wouldn't be proud of someone making that kind of money? I know. Some, it's, it kind of hurts sometimes because like sometimes I, I do like a really good thing, you know, or I make a lot of money and I want to, you know, boast about it. I'm like, hey, look, I, I did this, but I can't. <laughs> Um, and so you have this so besides besides the camming and the porn you also um have this have this uh a a bunch of other side projects um and uh one is your blog which is super interesting we'll post a a link to it um there's lots of stuff i think our audience would be interested in Uh, and and one thing just from following you on twitter and reading your blog that i've seen is that you're incredibly open about some like pretty problematic perspectives that you have problematic and sort of the quote unquote you know shit that'll get you canceled on twitter um have you had major sort have you ever been canceled i have not been canceled i did have a bit of a scare recently though uh, i had for a while perceived myself as uncancelable because my money comes from men who like watching porn and that like they don't care they don't give a shit they don't care about your your, your stance on personal pronouns <laughs> right uh but then recently I tweeted something like, why do uh, or, uh, black men catcall more than white men? Um, which I think is true. Also, I like catcalling. I, I don't think this is an issue. Um, but people were very mad at me for saying this. And then they started messaging people on Reddit. So Reddit is where I get most of my subscribers. And so they started messaging moderators of like the big subreddits that were like, if you get a good post there, you get a lot of subscribers. And then a couple of those subreddits um, like temporarily banned me from posting there because you said that that black men catcall more than yeah. white men 
Um, and people specifically were searching out like ways to hurt my income to like let people know that they need to deplatform me. So after that, I got like a little bit freaked out. And so now I'm going to be more careful. And I'm actively searching for a way to transition away from Reddit so I can be more free. I want to just like bring up an example so our audience knows what we're talking about of these sort of surveys um, uh, or these polls that you post on, on on Twitter. So give me one. Bear with me for one moment while I pull, pull these up. Would you support a government program that paid people with severe mental illness a, a healthy sum if they got sterilized? Uh, Jesse, you want to answer that question? <laughs> no, I would. I would not. That's the okay. easy, easy answer. No, but this is like the red. This is what rationalists do, and it's why they're an interesting community. They're sort of like um, ignore certain social mores, right? Wait, how is that ignoring a social more? Well, because you're not you're not supposed to ask a question like that because. It's considered. Uh, wait, wait, but it's. Wait, I don't understand. What? How is this question bad, though? Well, the question is bad because people will assume that that would be the first step down a slippery slope to some sort of eugenics project. I'm not saying that that it necessarily would be. I'm just saying that's how how people would interpret it because of like certain associations. Wait, are you saying that people who say yes, you should pay? Like that supporting that government program would be good. And then that's a slippery slope. Or is it the act of asking the question in the first place? Oh, I mean, so what people, what I imagine some people would respond to this would be by, it's like people would link you by ask, even asking the question aloud, people would link you to that position. And then they would link that position to more sort of aggressively eugenics positions. People's brains are just so fascinating. I mean, we live in a time right now where online Literally asking questions can get you canceled. Okay, but well, hold on. But it it sorry in de, in defense of the cancelers here, not not in defense of them. I'm obviously pro open discussion about a lot of stuff, but it's like you are asking about regimes that have existed in the lifetime of people who are alive today have in fact sterilized, but not voluntarily, people, or or people with developmental disability. I know, I know, but you can understand how people are. Uh, I just don't think it's crazy that people are made uh, a little bit uncomfortable by that. I, 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 I'm confused by how much people seem to like group similar ideas together without making distinctions between them. Me- meaning just that that voluntary involuntary uh, chasm is a very wide chasm. Yeah, it's a massive chasm. And also, like bad people in the past is like not the same thing as like asking a question like about what would be good for society in the present. Well, regardless, 65.9% of people said no. (laughs) (laughs) But on the other hand, 34.1% of people said yes, that they would. I mean, this does clearly show that your brain works a little bit differently from from most people's. Um, (laughs) And I wonder, does that uh, does that help you? Or is that or has that been a hindrance in your career and your life? I I, like both, I guess. It doesn't feel like my brain works differently. This feels just like like I feel like I'm totally normal to myself and everybody else is (laughs) insane. Uh, And. Some I, sometimes this makes people like me more. Like I say something and they're like, wow. And I, I think it was a normal thing to say. Um, so I'm like accidentally generating a lot of interest by just existing. Uh, and then sometimes it makes people get really mad at me. Like very often I've had tweets that just uh, fill up my notifications for days with people telling me I should kill myself because of like just a normal thing I thought I was saying. And does that emotionally affect you? Um. Yes, it, there's different levels of emotional effect depending on like what went viral and the types of insults people are giving me. Um, but mostly I feel kind of okay with it. At least I think I'm more resilient than most people. 
uh, but it's still kind of stressful. And do you have a sort of a, a political allegiance um, on either side or uh, presupposing that there are only two sides in American politics? Um, pretty libertarian ish. Okay. Yeah. 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 That it's that's not that's not super surprising. Um one of your <laughs> one of your blog posts that that I I really liked um is called The Side Effects of Preferred Pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um and I want to I want to just read a little paragraph here. Well, first of all, you 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 are clear that you still use people's preferred pronouns. Um and then you say Whenever I use a, pr- a preferred pronoun, it feels a bit like I'm playing a game of pretend. If an AFAB, assigned female at, mo- at birth, person asks me to use they, I do my best to treat them like they don't belong to either gender, but my brain does not play along. It sits on my shoulder like a child. She's a woman, it says. She's a woman and you're pretending she's not. I tell my shoulder brain to shut up, but it does not shut up. And so despite what I want to feel, my actual experience around non-binary people is that I'm actually talking to a woman and I, and not everyone around me, are pretending that we're not. So just first of all, how, like the amount of balls that it takes to put that online um <laughs> d- like did, do you have did, when you write something like that do you have any sense of like oh this is politically problematic this could get me in trouble a little bit like i was pretty careful in that article to like express that i do want to make someone feel good like this is not coming out of a like an ideological stance or you know disliking them at all like that this feels very much beyond my means. And so I was very careful to make that distinction. No, I, I think that's what's so interesting about this is that you're talking about ex- an experience that I think a lot of people probably have, but a lot of people are not going to talk about it um, because, well, there's consequences to that. And and you just to be clear, like you do distinguish between people who have like physically transitioned or are clearly on that road versus people who don't really make any effort to transition and adopt non-binary pronouns that that's the main category where you have the the shoulder brain right uh right yeah like if somebody physically like tricks my brain into categorizing them in a different category then yeah sure that that works well so as long as they pass pretty much yeah basically which i mean it sucks right like if you're trans and you're really just like disraught by the way that you look and you really want people to treat you another way like it fucking sucks to have to put in so much work to actually have people view you as the gender that you would like to be viewed as like i'm not saying this is a great thing i'm just saying that this is a thing yeah, absolutely. But we, you know, we like live in this time right now where we can't really talk about that or we're not supposed to talk about it um, because. Yeah, I think I have a perspective that like if it's an experience, like if you are genuinely like not putting it on anybody else, if this is actually just the way that you perceive the world and you're not ashamed about it, that it should be OK to put online and maybe people will get mad at you for it. But like at that point, I would rather die. <laughs> like, if they're, if people are going to kill me for being just a genuinely honest and not, like, aggressive about it, and not telling anybody what their experience is or the way they should view the world, but just, like, expressing the way that I view the world, like, I would be willing to take so much shit and, like, lose so much for just doing that because, like, I feel so principled about it. Like, that should be okay. And I want to make it okay by doing it and showing other people that this is okay. Like, because like in a way that this is an expression of love, right? Like so much of the, this pressure socially is, is telling people to deny or be afraid of what they are. And I figure if I can put what I am out there and, sh- and show that like I can be alive and flourishing and also do this, then maybe this will help people be more accepting of themselves. You, at one point you were, you did L- LSD on a regular basis for like 10 months, right? Yeah. Every week ish. Okay. Every, okay. Um, and, and we're not talking micro and we're talking big doses, right? right. Very large doses. And- yeah, so I'm wondering, is this like, have you always had this particular, um, 
you know, incredibly candid, honest personality? Or is this something that, I don't know, maybe be a side effect of doing LSD all the time? <laughs> I mean, probably a lot of it came from the LSD. I, I think I was always a little bit confrontational even before then, like sort of principled and confrontational. But I think the gentleness came after the LSD when I learned like how to accept myself. So tell us a little bit about the backstory there. Why did you decide to do LSD every week for 10 months? I, well, I don't think it was really a conscious decision. Um, I hadn't really done any drugs at all. And then I tried LSD. Um, and then the second time I tried it, it was a really incredible experience. And then I was like, wow, that was awesome. I should just do it again, I guess. And then I did it again. And then I just kept doing it. Yeah. Jesse, have you ever done LSD? So no. And I, I am a little bit jealous because I think... Um, in the right settings, hallucinogens or psychedelics can have like incredible effects. I mean, they can also have bad effects, but I'm just, I don't think I could do a hardcore hallucinogen. I think it would potentially wreck my psyche, which sucks. Cause I think if you, ha if you're the sort of person who can do them, they they can be wonderful experiences. God, we got it for our, pa for our top patrons. We got to record you doing LSD for the first time. Yeah. You just, you just dose me yeah. non-consensually <laughs> and then record it for the patrons. That'll be your, that'll be your, your <laughs> debut on OnlyFans. I've, I've literally had panic attacks just from smoking weed. So I think that's not a very good Well, sign. to be fair, weed sucks. How dare you? How dare you say that about my best friends? <laughs> well, this is all, this is Massachusetts sh swag. Well, swag, what's it called? It's just like, it was the weed that I, well, no, actually I've, I've freaked out from good quality weed. It's just, it's per, it's your genetics, right? And like, whatever. Weed, not people act like weed. People act like weed chills you out. It has the exact opposite effect on some people, or, or some strains do. I, I, I do not do well on weed at all. It freaks me out. <laughs> pounds and pounds of LSD are fine, <laughs> but if you like take one hit from like a a, jo a joint, you just that's yeah. It. Weed is like paranoia inducing, but like LSD is not. My answer to that, to when people say that weed is paranoia inducing, is that you're you're not just you're just not doing enough. <laughs> You just gotta up your Dude, doses. I, oh, you just like, need to smoke more. That'll help the paranoia. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, okay, so I have done acid and mushrooms um, a bunch of different times. And the thing that I have, I'm sort of jealous of your experience because what I'm unable to do is to take those experiences and translate them to anything when I'm sober the next day. Um, so how, like, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, it's just, it's like, I'll have a profound experience and I'll like write it in my journal or whatever. And then when I wake up the next day, it's like, oh, those were Justin Bieber lyrics. And like, none of this means anything. This was just like, you know, a, an effect of a drug on your brain. So how are you able to take these profound experiences and translate those into your, the way that you live your life? It's, it's possible, maybe you're having a different category of profound experience than I was, or it's possible that you just have a different like reaction to the drug entirely. Um, and I think that this is pretty common. Like lots of people take psychedelics and then just sort of it fades pretty quickly afterwards. I think this is part of the reason I got so much out of it is because I sort of like kept like slamming the button over and over. Like as soon as I gained the tolerance able to take more LSD, I did. Um, and like it eventually cum accumulated. Did you ever have any like horrible, horrific experiences when you were doing this? My very first time doing LSD was horrible. Um, I really liked being in control of my own mind. I valued myself a lot for my intellect and my ability to reason and to like see things clearly and not be like taken in. You know, I was the kind of person who thought that I would not be fooled on psychological studies when they, you know, try and fool the participants. And so when I took LSD for the first time and it was just wrenching control away from me and that was absolutely horrifying because I was like, fuck, like I, I'm not going to let the control be taken away. And so I spent the entire trip like desperately trying to find myself and to like 
sort of like feel like I was above what was happening. Um, and that's not what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to do the opposite almost, right? No. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to do the opposite. But I didn't know. I didn't know anything about what LSD was or how it worked. Um, so it was a terrible trip. Um, like I remember like I, I was at a party and I just ran out into the rain into the suburb I didn't know and like tried to lose everybody who was trying to take care of me and ended up like clawing my wrist until it was raw. No, but this is what scares the shit out. Like I, 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 a kid my year, the year above me um, in college died because he like took it and he wasn't ready and he threw himself out a window like i'm not saying that's a i don't want to be a scaremonger but you have to be really careful right yeah wait did that really happen that's the like that's the horror story that the vice principal of my school would come and tell tell us every year um that and like don't stick your head out the bus window because you'll get hit by a branch it'll decapitate you did this actually happen (laughs) it happened yes it happened to a friend of a friend wow okay wow not just an urban legend hey kids don't do drugs (laughs) yeah no, do some drugs, but set set and setting, right? right? Pizza and beer. Also, I so now when I first started doing it, I just was feeding everybody really high doses for their first time, which was a terrible idea. Do not do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think just start small. Like if you don't, if you're nervous about it, like take, you know, 25 mics and it, it, that's going to be really, really mild. You're not going to kill yourself. There's going to be no problems about having a bad trip. Like at the worst, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. And then if that goes well for you, like slowly work your way up. So, so maybe there's hope for me because like at two different, two of my best friends sort of bachelor weekends, I took like baby doses of shrooms and I laughed hysterically and it was the funniest nights of my life and I had none of the negative, uh, you know, feelings from weed. So does that mean there's hope for me to, to become a hardcore druggie? Yeah, definitely. With, with some work, you too can blast your mind open and lose it, lose yourself. All right, Jesse, goals for 2021. <laughs> All right, uh, Jesse, do you have, did you have any other questions? <laughs> I have a million questions, but I think uh, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I mean, yeah, thank you for talking to us. You, I think you inhabit a very different world and one I don't understand. And I'm sure some of my questions were inadvertently <laughs> offensive. Uh, okay, not at all. I, I you've seen my tweets. I can't. I don't really process that. <laughs> well, actually, wait. Let me ask one more question because this is related to you know at the beginning of the podcast. Katie made a joke about like me being one of your subscribers. I said, no, I'm approved. I like, I've never even been to a strip club. Wait, wait, wait. That's not true. It is. Remember when we went to that after that, after my event in New York? Oh, yes. We- that was, there was a bar in Gowadis where I believe the bartenders got up on the table <laughs> and started, started dancing. It was a yes. regular bar. And then, and then all of a sudden it turned into a strip club. And then we left. Okay. Wow. By that definition, I've been to three accidental strip clubs, including the first gay bar I ever went to when I was like 22. Um, but what – okay. So what I – am I being condescending when I'm just like that, that fucking power relationship where I am paying someone to take off their clothes for me? I just – it makes me uncomfortable. Is that just because I'm too incredibly a good person and respect <laughs> women too much? That's what I think it is. What is that? I mean, it could be. It could be you're you're morally yes. <laughs> but I think that there is some. We've talked about this on the show before about how there's this idea that if someone is like more quote unquote powerful, that they have the power in any given situation. If you're giving money to somebody, like, do you think that the men who who you're camming to, do you think they have the power over you? It would seem to be the opposite. Yeah, I very often felt sort of like maybe I was exploiting the men who are giving me money because it's like the the. Like cam girls, like a sort of mid range, you know, charged kind of a lot, and it was a lot of money for me at the time when I first started because I was like homeless and living off savings. So I, I was like, am I exploiting these poor men, like using their urges for like their boner urges to like, to, like wring money out of them? Are we exploiting our listeners? Right, we're exploiting them. They're exploiting us. We're all exploiting each other. 
yes. Everyone's exploiting yeah. everyone. It's capitalism, yeah. baby. Well, where can people find you online? Um, Ayla Girl, A-E-L-L-A underscore girl at Twitter. Um, I have a link tree, very similar. And also my website, knowingless.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Also, can I can I take this uh, opportunity to announce my own OnlyFans? It's, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the username is Jewish underscore nudity. <laughs> Jew- <laughs> Jewish, Jewish horse. Nudity. Jewish underscore horse girlfriend slash nudity slash pizza. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on, Ayla. Okay, thanks. <laughs> All right, Jesse, you ready to start your OnlyFans? <laughs> there would be the first OnlyFans in history to somehow lose money. <laughs> you do, you do frequently podcast topless. Yeah, all the time. Um, no, that was, she. She's very interesting, and and I think you could tell. People could probably tell from that whole thing about that, like that question about the eugenics adjacent thing, where like <laughs> she does have she does have a different sort of brain yes. to. to it's one thing to be like, we should be able to talk about stuff really frankly. That's like something a philosopher might talk about. But like to not understand why people would be pissed off, you can see why she sometimes gets in trouble, perhaps. Yeah, she's super fascinating. Um, I am sure that there's probably going to be part of our audience who doesn't like the fact that we had a sex worker on the show. Um, tell us about it. Send us an email. Uh, you can reach us at blockedandreported at gmail.com. Um, we will read your emails. We might re- respond to your emails, but we will read your emails. Yeah, this is one of those issues where it is like so white hot in like the online cesspools we swim around in, just like the the vitriol between the sort of two sides. But like, you know, I, f- I find myself vacillating a little, not on the basic questions of whether or not like, you know, sex workers should be thrown in jail for extended lengths of time. Of course they shouldn't. But um, as you guys could probably tell from the conversation, there is some nuance worth unpacking here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Jesse, any other housekeeping we need to do before we round up? Uh, no, just remember, uh, if you're thinking of becoming a patron and you want to join the December 31st hangout, uh, do that. You can always reach us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Jewish underscore nudity. <laughs> that's your only for, fans. Um, mm-hmm, uh-huh. Only fans. Yeah. Uh, I think that's it. Anything else? Um, we have a merch store. You can buy our merch. Um, it is at blockedandreported.org. Who knows how long the merch store will last? This could be, a, you know, this could be a, a temporary thing. And so you're going to want to get your merch before we we, we, we shut it down. <laughs> before we, we admit we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> I'm wearing my Blocked and Reported hoodie right now. It's quite comfortable. I, I still don't have one. I need to rectify that. Yeah, you do. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, podcasting is far too exploitative to be considered a normal form of work. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you have a question that's too hot to tweet, Ayla will probably do it for you. <laughs> <laughs>